Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult services, or at our general services Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. One of the number one fears on the planet is heights. Raise your hand if you're afraid of heights. Raise your hand if you have respect for heights. Perfect, me too. Uh, <laughs> all right, so way back, June 30th, 1859, a guy named Charles Blondin was a nut job. He would, uh, he was like a tightrope walker. Have you ever seen these? Like, you ever been to like Las Vegas, you see like the circus of labor? So they walk around these three-inch cables, right, which is like this two-by-four, and he would have this really long, I think there's some photos actually of him. Uh, so yeah, he would have this, uh, this like really long balancing thing, and he would walk across a rope. Here's this crazy, go to the next photo. Yeah, go to the next photo. He, he would cross Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet, 500 feet in the air. So if he would fall off this thing, he would fall to his death immediately, right? Here's his wife. He would do it blindfolded. He would make sandwiches, which I don't understand. Um, he would even, uh, he would ask volunteers, and he would carry them on his back. When you think about that, when you think about that, go back to, yeah, there you go. That's the one, uh, first one on his back. All right, when you think about this, this has got to be one of the best examples of trust ever placed into another human being ever, Right? Blondin one day, that's his name, uh, he decided he was going to carry his manager, I think that's his manager, on his back from one side of the falls to the other. Now, I just want you to imagine with me, this didn't actually happen, but imagine like halfway, the manager's like, all right, Blondin, um, I want to, I appreciate you, uh, you know, taking me this far, you know, we're 500 feet into this whole thing, um, but I really don't trust you anymore, and I think I'll do the rest myself. Let me down, and I'll just, I'll go on my way. Now, can you, can you imagine, like, this dude, if he was athletically balanced on his knee, would immediately take one step, fall to his death, Right? The question remains, and I was thinking about it, why in the world would he think that he could get the rest of the way across by himself? That somehow he could cross the vast distance between the, uh, between the two sides? Weirdly enough, this is exactly what Paul is writing about in Galatians chapter 3, that the distance between you and God is too vast for you to cross the other side. That you and I need someone else to carry us, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, one of the greatest misconceptions about Christianity is that you and I can walk towards God alone by ourselves. That you could become good enough in some sense, right? Because that's kind of what most modern, most world religions teach, that if you just become good enough, you can cross the tightrope across from one side to the other all the way to God, but that's not the gospel. The gospel says bad news. You're not good enough, but good news, Jesus is, and he promises to carry you to the other side by faith. That's what Galatians 3 is about. So if you have a Bible, go with me. Galatians chapter 3. We've got a lot to read today, 29 verses. Um, let me get some water because it's going to be long. All with me. I'm in the ESV version as I always am. And uh, again, nice sermon, just some commentary for you guys to talk about in groups in a bit. All right, so follow with me. Oh, foolish Galatians, highlight that. Who has bewitched you? So he's obviously not like, hey, brother. You know what I'm saying? He's like, uh, uh, literally, this best translates to, by the way, it says this. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. That's how it best translates, right? Can you imagine, like, if that's how you open an email? Hey, idiot. You know, like, that's basically, all right. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. In other words, Right before your eyes, it didn't happen physically. You didn't actually see Jesus crucified, but you heard about it. The eyewitnesses who saw it happen came to you and told you. Let me ask you one thing. Did you receive the Spirit? In other words, did you receive a relationship with God by doing good things, works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit are now being perfected by the flesh? Here's what it translates to. Are you out of your minds right now? Right? Who has come and confused you into thinking that you need something other than Jesus to be right with God? You need to add all these Old Testament rules and laws and become the best, very best person, all these other types of things. Now, here's what I've learned in my time as a pastor. I've learned that a lot of Christians have really soft hearts, but they all have even softer heads. They have softer minds. 
They easily accept wrong and unbiblical ideas, and that's a sign that they are infants in their, in their, in their, in their faith. Right? They'll put anything into their mind, just like my infant daughter would put anything into her mouth, right? So what are some common lies that like, often early infant Christians believe? I know good people go to heaven. You can ask a lot of church-going people how you get to heaven. By being good. By being good. No, that's literally the opposite of what this tells us. It literally does not. It says you are never good and will never be good. That you need someone else. Like, imagine like if you talk to Charles Blondin, like, hey, what gets you to the other side? Or, or the person on top of his shoulders by being a good person. No, no, no. It's by you trusting this guy to bring you across, right? That's actually the symbol of our faith, right? It's not you being good. Your goodness has nothing to do with it. It's are you going to place your faith in Jesus Christ who can carry you to the other side, right? That, that's the story in the message of the gospel. What are some other false ideas or lies that infant Christians believe? All sins are equal. Maybe number three, uh, your life should be easy when you follow Christ. You should be like fairy tales and dandies, and you should get the girlfriend and boyfriend of your dreams immediately, like all that type of stuff. Um, or you can coerce God, right, through your moralism and reading the Bible and your church attendance and somehow doing these types of things, coming to church, sitting in these seats, somehow coerces God and places him in your debt. So here's what Paul then says, look, I want you to pause on all that real quick. I want you to come here real quick, and I want you to remember back when you first accepted Christ. You remember back when you first, like, said yes to Jesus and you became a believer, Right, to use the tightrope tight, uh, tight analogy, you became a Christian not by thinking you could cross over the chasm by yourself, but by placing your trust in Christ to do what you couldn't do, right? In short, God doesn't come into our lives right, because we, in some sense, we really cleaned up ourselves because we're good enough. He comes into our lives not because we're good, but rather because he is good. See, we don't become Christians by earning God's love, right? We become Christians by placing our faith in Christ. So he's kind of saying, look, I want to encourage you, I want to charge you to continue in your faith during the same way you started it. Remembering it's all about God's grace, he does most of the work. This is not about some like spiritual performance of yours. There's a guy named uh, Thomas Schreiner, he's a New Testament scholar, he says this, as Christians we need to relearn the gospel every day. We're prone to wonder, as the old hymn says. Hence we act as if the spell has been casted over us. The Christian life is a battle to rely on the gospel, and even as Christians we're inclined to look to ourselves and trust in our own achievements, rather than relying on solely the cross of Christ. In other words, here's what he's saying. Look, you early Christians, you became Christians, believed the gospel, placed your faith in Jesus. A whole type of analogy. But then somewhere halfway through, you thought it all leaned upon you, that you needed to become and do all of these good things and whatever it may be. And so you kind of need to go back. You need to remember that your Christian life begins and ends the same way it started, by grace through faith with the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what this looks like. It looks like you coming before God and saying, look, I, I know that to cross the chasm, you did it. But... I really have an addiction that I want to, I'm not going to, it's like, if I asked you tonight to just like try to, try to go to sleep immediately, just like, just like try to, like it wouldn't work, right? Like, like sleep now, like just, it gives you like narcolepsy or something, it's not going to happen, right? Like just not, you know, not like a hypnotist, right? So like just, you kind of just, how do you go to sleep? You kind of almost just surrender your thoughts or just like, that's actually kind of the idea of the Christian faith, that we receive God's power in the act of surrendrance. And so like for those of us that have addictions to something, dude, I'm just not going to watch that, I'm not going to drink that, I'm not going to... It's, it's more so, God, I, I bring this to you. That this, this thing in my life is too consuming for me to be able to power through. Rather, I need your power for your spirit and your grace. And that's all done by faith. Faith is active trust. And we're going to talk about more of that in a second. I want you to follow with me in verse 4 through 9. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So these early churches, these early Christians in Galatia, they suffered for saying yes to Jesus. Right? So in the ancient world, it was brutal to be a Christian, right? So these people were probably killed and persecuted and excommunicated from social gatherings and golf clubs and a bunch of other things, right? 
And it was difficult. So he says, did that all not happen in vain? Like, or was there a purpose in that? Like, you first believed in the gospel, and you suffered for it, and now you're compromising. Verse 5, does he who supplies a spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Over hearing with faith. I want you to highlight, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Highlight that word. I'll, I'll define that word right now. Righteousness, what does it mean? You're going to hear that over and over in all of Paul's writings. The word righteousness means to have a right relationship with God. That's what righteousness means. Continues. Know that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify. Justify. There's another interesting word. What's the word justify mean? It's a legal term, actually. And it means to have a favorable verdict in a court of law. In this context, it means to have a favorable verdict before God on your judgment day. In other words, God's going to say, to some people, depart from me, I never knew you. And to others, he's going to say, well done, good faith, servant. That is, that is what it means to be justified. On your day of appointment, your judgment day before God, you have a favorable verdict delivered to you. Um, the Gentiles. Week one, week two, we've talked about Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Non-Jewish people. So if you're not a Jew in this room, welcome to the club. Right? Um, preach the gospel beforehand. Abraham saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. Highlight that. We're going to go back there for a second. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This gets to one of the, the heart of one of the biggest issues that we make when we read the Bible. It's one of the reasons that I think often a lot of Christians don't grow in their faith. For example, if you're asking a lot of people, what's the purpose of the Bible? What's the Bible? They're going to say it's a collection of good moral teachings by a good moral man who teaches how to live a good life. See, this view belittles God's word to a self-help manual, right, to just become a good person. Scripture points not to teach you to become a good person, rather to develop a relationship with the one who is good. And that, that actually is why he brings up Abraham here. Now we've got to ask the question, who's, who's Abe, right? Who's on the stage? Who's Abraham, right? Not Abraham Lincoln, right? Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, right? So way back when, Father Abraham had been sent, um, song, and uh, he basically started the entire Jewish faith, like literally the entire thing. Uh, in fact, Islam, uh, uh, the Muslim faith also believes that he actually was the father of Islam. Obviously, I don't believe that, but what we do know is he was the, he was the, the person that literally started the entire Jewish lineage, Jewish faith, all Jewish people come from Abraham. God came to him one day, and I'm going to teach you a little about what God talked to him in a second, but Abraham's life shows us this. There's a world difference. I think there's a chasm between the two. Believing in God and believing God. Believing in God and believing God. There's a huge chasm between the two. Abraham's life teaches us that. I'll tell you about that in a second. One point of this verse I want to point out. Paul writes, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So it doesn't say that Abraham did a bunch of good things and therefore God deemed him as righteous. Right relationship. It said because he believed God, he was counted to him as righteous. That he was going to have a right relationship with him. I get this question often from people, and maybe you have this question. Okay, wait. How, how were people saved like before Jesus? And the answer is the same way that Abraham was saved. By faith in God as he has revealed himself. So all the Jewish people, they were saved by placing their faith in God as he has revealed himself. How has God revealed himself today? Well, there's 27 books in the New Testament that teach us how he has revealed himself. So we are saved by placing our faith in God, in, in how God has revealed himself. So Paul begins to prove this, right, by using an accounting term as he uses a word for it was counted to him. So um, the idea is that it's been deposited in your account. It, 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 it's been accredited. Now, let me give you an idea. Um, so I'm kind of into cryptocurrencies, and I can, I can teach you how to lose a lot of money. And, uh, no, I'm just playing, but, um, so like, I, I haven't made tons of money on it, and, I, and this is not a good season to make money on it. Um, and so one of my favorite things about, about cryptocurrencies, let's use Bitcoin for, for an example, is you can, uh, it's easy to like 
deposit into other people's accounts. Like really easy, right? It's like QR code, whatever it is, right? Uh, you can, can do similar things with like Chase banking and things like that. It's a little more complicated. It takes a little longer. It's not instantaneously. There's a plethora of other things. I have a, uh, this one person in my life who's like really wealthy and he had tons of cryptocurrency and he deposited it into another person's account who's trying to figure out what cryptos were about. Tons of money. I wish he deposited in my account, but he deposited in someone else's account. In this moment, the person that received all of this money that he didn't work for, received all this money, if something was deposited into his account and now he can operate like it was his own. See, this is the idea of how faith operates. I need you to hear this. We are not saved by our good works, by that being deposited into our account. Rather, God deposits the righteousness of Jesus into our account through our faith. So let me backtrack really quick. This is the Christian life. It's not, you are not good enough to save yourself. Rather, by faith in Christ, that's the transactional thing, by faith in Christ, God deposits the righteousness of Jesus, the right standing with God, into our account as if we were Jesus. And we can operate as if it is our own. So it is faith and faith alone that saves. Christ becomes the medium where God deposits Jesus' perfect life in our broken one. And so this is why Paul uses the life of Abraham to say Abraham was a member of whose family? God's family. If you want to be a member of God's family, then you need what he had. What did he have? It wasn't a bunch of good things. It was rather faith. Here's what you need to know. We're going to learn this in a second. The law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other stuff happened after Abraham. But the Bible says that Abraham was saved. But he didn't follow any of the laws. Like all the things that Jewish people had to do. The Ten Commandments didn't exist yet. So how was he saved? It gives us a very clear answer. He was saved by his faith in how God revealed himself. We see this in the, in the next few verses. Follow with me. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Highlight, underline that. For it is written, Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do that. In other words, if you are not perfect, you're screwed. <laughs> now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Justified, favorable verdict before God on judgment day. For the righteous shall live by faith. For the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, redeem, by becoming a curse for us. That's the whole story of the cross, what is written. Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, so they may receive the promised spirit through faith. Three things I need you to know about this. Number one, the purpose of the law of the Ten Commandments was this, to show us that we are not the stakers who need a second chance, we're sinners who need a savior. Two, the curse he's talking about is the death sentence that sin pronounces over us. The reality is that heaven is not our natural default. I get, a, I get the privilege of doing a lot of funerals. And at every funeral I've ever been to, the family operates that heaven is our natural default. Now, I'm not up there on, 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 on their day of grief to tell them something maybe indifferent. But the truth is, heaven is not our natural default. Something needs to change. Hell is our natural default. And without Jesus, we're all doomed to go there. Our natural default is to live hell up, not heaven down. But because of Jesus and the work of the cross, we can have heaven down and we can go to heaven. Number three, the cross is our greatest image of redemption. Redemption comes from the practices of ancient warfare. After a battle, the victors would often capture some of the defeated. Now, among the defeated would often be the poor class, the poor economic class, and they would usually be sold as slaves immediately for pennies on the dollar. But the wealthy, important men, the men who mattered to their home countries, they were held for a ransom. Now, when the people in their homelands had risen the required price, they would pay it to the victors, and the captives would be set free. This process was called redemption, and the price was called a ransom. The biblical theme here is slaves, our sin enslaves us, and Jesus paid the ransom with his life to set us free. That's what Paul's talking about. Verse 15 and 16, follow with me. To give a human example, brothers, he's kind of sarcastic here, I'm not going to lie. Like, if you have like a teenage younger sister, that's like, it's kind of a sarcastic, like 12 year old. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, what's the word for covenant here? It's will and testament. So maybe some of your families um, have like living trust, living wills. 
That's the same word here. It's a contract that's abiding. When they pass away, there's something that you inherit. And follow with me. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, the only person that gets to change a living trust and will is the person that owns it. So like, if my parents had one, I don't, I don't get to control it until maybe they pass away. But while they're alive, they own it. They're, they're, they're the only people that can change it, annul it, make, make edits to it. He's going to begin to say, who has made the contract between you and God? God owns it. So God owns his side of the contract. He hasn't changed it. In other words, he hasn't in, in, included works in this whole thing. It's just faith. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and offsprings with an S, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? All right, we're going to quick pause here. I'm going to teach you something really quick. In the book of Genesis, we, we read about Abraham. Abraham. I just told you a little bit who he was. He is the father of the Jewish nation, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, all of it. Um, he started the Jewish people, and, and basically the religion kicked off of him uh, in many ways. Now, um, God came to him one day and said, look, Abraham, I'm hyped on you, and uh, I, I want to I bless you. I want, I want your descendants to be as numerous as the stars, and hence we have the state and people uh, of Israel. And uh, through your lineage, Abraham, I know you're, not gonna, you're never going to see this day because you're going to be long gone and dead, but through your lineage, I'm going to bless the entire world through here. This was called the, through you, this was called the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, who was, if you read Matthew chapter 1, who was Jesus' very, 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 very time, like 2,000th grandfather? Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish race, who was like the lead super Jew? Jesus, right? And so he's the Jewish of Jews of all, and he's like the leader of all that, right? And so he's saying, look, I'm going to bless the entire world to the Abrahamic lineage, Jewish people. In comes Jesus Christ. Follow with me, verse 17 and 18. This is what I mean that the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. The argument is, look, Abraham was saved by faith. The law with Moses, Moses parted the Red Sea, let my people go, you know the whole thing. Uh, Ten Commandments, 430 years after, all with me, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, I want to recap what we talked about in week one. It'll help us understand what he's talking about here. Paul's writing this letter to a group of early Christians. Like I said earlier, who believe that you need to become Jewish, adopt all that stuff and works, then accept Christ. Paul's argument is, the Judaizers' argument is that faith is not enough. Paul uses Abraham to show that faith is enough. That God told Abraham thousands of years ago, and 430 years before Moses, which everyone loves Moses if you're Jewish, that he would bless the entire world through Abraham, including non-Jewish people by a Jewish man named Jesus Christ. His reasoning is this. Non-Jewish people can be saved by placing their faith in Jesus, who is the actualization of the promises that God gave to Abraham. Verse 19, follow with me. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Tons here, but here's a few things you need to know. Remember that I think Paul knew that oftentimes he'd probably get a lot of people who would come up to him and ask, okay, if we're saved by faith, then why would God even like, create the whole law system? Because right? there's a lot of like mosaic laws that come from the Ten Commandments. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. Why would God even go to create all of these laws if we were always saved by faith and faith alone? And it's proved that the law's purpose was not to give salvation, but rather to show our need for it. Follow with me on this analogy. The law exposes sin like a microscope exposes a deadly virus. In other words, nothing changes when something is exposed. It needs to be expunged. It needs to be removed. The law gives us a problem. It doesn't provide a solution. That we have a need that only God's grace can fill. D.L. Moody, the great theologian, says this. The law is a good-looking glass mirror in which to show a child how defiled his face is. But who can think of washing the child's face with a looking glass? In other words, the law, like, like, law is like a mirror. 
And if, if a mirror shows you like how it looks dirty on your face or whatever it is, you would never try to take the mirror off the wall and wash your face, face, with, it, right? face with it. It wouldn't work, right? That's not, that's not the purpose of it. God's law actually operates in a very similar way. It can't save us. It just shows us that we need saving, that we're not perfect. I mean, just go through a few of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied before? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever placed something in front of your relationship with God? Right? Have you ever um, had any envy in your heart? Like I said, lust, whatever it may be, right? If you've ever broken one of the laws, it means we're, we're separated from God. The other thing, the silly analogy that I give to students, which I'm going to give to you now, is uh, imagine like if you, we all went to Jamba Juice, and um, we're walking out of Jamba Juice, and as you're walking out of Jamba Juice, a little bit like a little hummingbird just poops in your smoothie. Just a little, just a little, just a little, just a little drops from the air, right? Now, if you saw it happen, and you saw a little like, doop, just pop in there, in that one moment, you would throw it away. Why? Because the smallest impurity taints the entire thing. That's the concept of sin. The smallest amount of it taints all of us. And therefore, we can't walk the chasm between us and God. The, sin is not a gradient. It's not like we're heaven-bound until Hitler us. You know, that's not, that's, not, that's not it. They're actually categories. It's not a gradient. Like our, like our teachers used to grade on Twitter. That's not what it is. It's not like, um, if I can do enough good, I can get to God. That's not it. It's you're either over here or you're over here. But the person that walked between the two sides was Jesus, not you. You, you and I can't walk between the two sides. I want you to follow with me to verse 20. Now, an intermediary applies more than one. But, uh, God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the idea. The law can't make us right with God. It can only imprison us and help us recognize our need for Christ. That we are prisoners on death row, and he, he alone is the only one that can get us off death row. Follow with me, verse 23 to 29, we'll end here. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have been put on. So some people got baptized this weekend, right? Baptism is a full immersion. You were completely covered, right? That's the, that's the image there. That's why it's done in water. It means that like, it's representative that you are fully covered in Christ. Uh, there's, you don't like just like, stick your pinky toe in it. Like, that's not how it works. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Remember, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who became uh, Jewish Christians who think that everyone in the world needs to become a Jew. Follow all, grow out their beards, even the ladies. I'm playing. But all, the, all the stuff. And uh, you need to become a Jew, whatever. And uh, then accept Christ. So he's saying, look, we're all one in Christ Jesus. If you're born in Egypt, California, Texas, Arkansas, anywhere else in the world, Antarctica, if anyone's born there, right, we're all one in Christ Jesus if we've placed our faith in him. And if you're Christ, uh, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's so much here, but let me just give you, let me tell you why this is good news. And we'll wrap up and I'll get you guys in groups because I've already been speaking for like 30 something minutes. Almost everything we do. Almost everything we do in life is based off performance. So if you go to school, for those of you guys who are in school, you get grades based on your papers and your tests. If, if you work, you get reviews and you're measured against your certain standards. See, we are hardwired to judge ourselves based purely on performance. And oftentimes people take that into their relationship with God as well. Uh, the famous quarterback, Brett Favre, says this. You're only as good as your last pass. That's a terrible way to live. Right? And I know that many people are tempted to live that way. What does this look like when it's related to our faith? It means that the last bad thing that you did is what you think your relationship with God looks like. And so you live in guilt and shame, and that really the two prominent emotions that live out your faith journey. Not freedom, love, grace, and mercy. And that's a huge change. 
right? To think that your relationship with God is only as good as the last good thing that you did, or the last not, or the last sin that you did, or whatever it is, is a horrific way, and not a relationship. It's not, it's not, not the gospel. So Paul tells us this was never meant to be this way. That you don't have to perform for God, and because He loves you unconditionally, it means that when you sin, He doesn't love you any less. I'll say it this way: Salvation in Christ does not come from a law that we break all the time. I'm honest with you, I'm a very imperfect person. And so salvation, righteousness, a right relationship with God does not come from the law that I break all the time. It comes from the promises of God that he never breaks. And so let me just pray over you or read over you one promise that comes from the book of Romans that Paul also wrote. He says this, here's one promise. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has risen from the dead, that you'll be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The idea of shame there is separation from God. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who can. Finally, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, heaven is not our natural default. But if you confess that Jesus is who he claimed to be, he will walk you from one side to the other. And when you and I die, we get to, we, we get to be in heaven. That's what Galatians 3 is really trying to communicate to us because that's the story of the gospel. We pray for you guys, and we'll get you in your guys' groups. Father, today I'm thankful. I'm thankful, God, that we are learning to discover and to continue to discover, God, that you are all that we need and Jesus is all that we need. And so, Father, I ask that as we continue in these groups, we continue to teach us what grace is all about in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.